coach, welcome to Elite Soccer. I'm your host, Ian Barker. In this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Alex Neal. Alex has enjoyed successes as the manager, guiding Hamilton Academicals to the Scottish Premiership, before moving south of the border to Norwich City, where he led the Canaries into the Premier League in 2016. Alex was extremely generous sharing his knowledge and experience as he talked about strategy. You want to make sure that keep hope first and foremost, and if I'm not, your job as a coach is to make sure that you find a strategy that suits them. Tactics? If it's an uncomfortable on a regular basis training, when they get to the games, they're going to be much more at ease. And session design. Try to take that one element out of the game and make it as small and condensed as possible so you're getting repeated opportunities to carry that out. We also discussed Alex's elite soccer session on beating the high press, which you can find on our website, elitesoccercoaching.net. It was a fantastic 25 minutes, lots of takeaways. We hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we enjoyed making it. Going into a season, how do you determine the overarching strategy, your approach towards the season? I think it depends on what club you're at to start with. There's two different strategies. I think there's a club strategy in terms of what your expectations are for the season where you deem your squad to be, how strong you are. And then I think there's a strategy about how you would go about each game on the pitch. For my teams, we are always relatively aggressive in terms of we don't want one opposition controlling the ball. We want it's high press, we like after teams with high energy. So that strategy is, is one we would implement throughout games. The strategy in terms of the club strategy going forward would be what our aims are, our key performance indicators across that season would be in terms of what we're looking to achieve and, and how we go about it. Your personal preferences, the identity of the club to some extent, when you talk about the KPIs, could you give us a few of the KPIs above and beyond wins and losses? When we are playing in a specific way, we'll look at a lot of KPIs in terms of turnovers and opposition's half, how many times we nick the ball back, how many crosses we might be producing the game. And what it will show you is in terms of flank to attack, where we attack from, do we attack predominantly down one side, do we supply a lot of crosses, do we try and build through central areas a lot. And because of the way that we play, we would expect high turnovers a lot in the opposition's half. We'd expect they have lost possessions in their half because their press has been good. We'll expect a lot of longer balls against us because they struggle to build through the press. So those indicators being in our favour and certainly being at the top end of the table in the division would subsequently, I was looking at it, would think that we are implementing our strategy as well as we would like. Excellent. As the season progresses, you start to see the upcoming fixtures, both league, cup competitions, etc. How consistent can you be with the strategies or are there significant tweaks as you see upcoming opponents or certain points in the season? There's definitely tweaks. I think to approach every game in the exact same manner isn't possible in terms of personnel for a start because your personnel really dictate how good you are at doing it. If you're a high energy team but you don't have a lot of high energy players available at that point you might be have to bring in a couple of maybe older players that hadn't been playing because of injuries, suspension you might need to tweak basically protect them as much as anything else. What you want to do is albeit you don't mind exposing your players but you want to make sure they're capable first and foremost and if they're not, your job as a coach is to make sure that you find a strategy that suits them, that gives them the best chance of being successful on the day. So, yeah, definitely need to do that. But equally, I think the opposition is a big factor because if you're playing against a team that's really direct in the first instance, 
what you wouldn't do is be ultra aggressive and commit too many players forward because that first ball that's going to go forward regardless is going to take out seven or eight players of your team. So you've got a lack of defenders behind the ball at that point. So we would normally maybe sit back a little bit deeper than usual, allow the first pass to go, and then we would maybe start to press the ball and, and try and get after it. We both use the word tweaks. Could you ever conceive of an environment or a situation where you'd have to abandon the, the strategy that you started at the beginning of the season and take a complete 180-degree pivot? Or are you going to try to fight it through to the end with the tweaks? I think it depends on personnel available and, and less so opponents, but more results. Because I think ultimately, there's one thing believing in your philosophy or, or whatever you want to label it as. But equally, if it's not working, you need to find a different way. I think it's tweaks. I don't think it's a complete overhaul. I don't think it's the opposite of what you're doing. I just think it's tweaking it in a fashion which those weaknesses that are obviously costing you games, because if you're having to consider that, there's obviously something fundamentally wrong somewhere. And what you need to do is you need to assess and find what it is, and then you need to tweak that. That's the thing that needs to change. If you're maybe trying to press the ball too much and you don't have the energy in your team to do so, then ultimately you're going to have to make sure you do it in a different manner because if you don't, results are going to continue to go against you. The intentionality of it that you could speak to, this always being intentional is really, uh, really powerful. In terms of the KPIs, staff that you have around you, the work that you do, how do you deploy or employ performance analysis? What type of resources do you use to reflect and, and evaluate performance? We're start driven to a point because I think stats serve a purpose, but I don't think that they tell the full story and I don't think they're the real and end all. In terms of our strategy and how we'd like to play, what we've seen over a number of years is there's specific KPIs that we would look towards that are good indicators as to whether we're playing well in terms of what we're trying to do. And I think certainly for individuals as well, you can, that can be quite um, a harm. For instance, heading percentage for centre-backs, because if you're going to adopt a really aggressive approach, a lot of the time, teams will miss it out and go straight to the front. If you've got dominant centre-backs, you're then heading it back into an area that you're flooded with players. And equally, you're going that way with all your players at the top end of the pitch, which is obviously beneficial. But there's certain things like that. Crosses for full-backs will allow you to see how many times that they get your full-backs up the pitch, how many shots, how many goals from your front players in terms of touches and opposition box, different things like that. All those little bits... I think if you, if you assess any team, you go to Man City. The, the way Man City look at it is how many passes they make because they're a possession-based team. And what they look at is in terms of how many times can they get De Bruyne on the ball and that we inside pocket off the right. If you're assessing teams that are much more based on going forward and getting crosses in, they, they'll assess it by that. I think it really becomes specific to you and what you're trying to do. But we've certainly got ones individually and we've got ones collectively that we would pay particular attention to. I appreciate you taking some questions there on overarching strategy. If we can get a little bit more into sort of tactics and game, in-game, fostering and supporting your decision makers, your key decision makers, be they, let's say, centre-backs or creative midfielders, do you have an approach to fostering decision-making in your training sessions within your squad? Yeah, I think repetitions a lot here in terms of how we are trying to build. I've had teams before where we've had two extremely good technicians in the ball, but to get them on the ball, you need your centre-backs to be brave. You need them to take it and try and find that extra pass to get them front-facing so they can then start trying to dictate the play. So 
we, we would certainly do a lot of drills in terms of working the ball out for the back. we being obviously heavily numbered in terms of the defensive build-up, so that we've almost got an extra option. But then what we would do is we'd then develop it into becoming really difficult for us to work it out. So at times make it really uncomfortable for them. Because if it's uncomfortable on a regular basis in training, when they get to the games, they're going to be much more at ease when they've got that little bit of extra time. They've not got maybe as many players against them at that point. And equally, I think you've always got, you've got tactically through your group, you'll always have your key men, guys that can take your message, understand it quicker than anybody else, but equally can implement it on the pitch to the rest of the players. And, that, and that's really important because there's different methods of learning. We'll do video work, but equally we'll do it in the pitch. We'll do one-on-one stuff. But some players will take it in a lot, lot slower than others. And the ones who are your key guys, they're the guys that you need to really get them to buy in. And that starts in training, but equally in games, that's when it's, it's most functional, if you like, in terms of where it's happening. So when you're up on the sideline during the game, the fans can see you. You're talking, are you talking to those key men very often, those leaders? Are those the first ones you're trying to get messages across to to influence maybe in-game tactics? Definitely. I think they're your leaders. A lot of teams have leadership groups. It's not just one leader anymore. I think generally you're probably your maybe a group of four. And what I like to do is, is try and basically put it through the spine of your team. Because if you think about it, if you're a left back, how do you influence somebody being a left back? Whereas a central midfield player, a centre forward, generally you're in contact with the players in the bow all over the pitch really so you can influence it a lot lot easier and I think those guys are the guys that really need to buy it and they need to understand it better than anyone else excellent in the preparation in the training I think of horizontal lines the back four blocks of the team and then also vertical lines the relationship between flank players and things like that when you're integrating training how quickly do you get to big squad type numbers or are there a lot of attention to detail in groups of the team, be they vertical or horizontal? If we're doing horizontal, that's normally a defensive-based drill. If you think about it in terms of the spaces and gaps and working across the pitch, if we're doing vertical, generally it's offensively. So full-backs overlapping wide players that they come in, the wide players might be hugging the touchline, getting an underlap from the fullback. So we would split it into defensive and offensive. I think the one area where that becomes a little bit mixed is probably midfield because they naturally need to do a bit of both. But we would generally like to start the training. If we want to focus on one specific element, we start small numbers. As the session develops, we integrate more and more players until we get to the point where it's an 11 v 11 game. So it's just basically focusing on that one segment or that one area, but then naturally putting it into a games-type scenario as you develop it. Excellent. So Wikipedia is very generous in giving a pretty good detail of your playing career. So it's going to get a little tiny person here, but not too bad. Your experience as a player, your tactical perceptions, the position you played, how have they informed you as a manager and in the way that you look at your players? Obviously, younger people now, different type of game, different leagues they play in. But what is the influence of your personal tactical experience as a player? Other policy my tactical experience as a player is probably what's made me the manager that I am to be really. Because I think there's some players who are technically supremely talented and can do things. I think that's difficult then to teach someone else how to do that. I would probably say my biggest strength as a player 
was influence other players. It wasn't necessarily a, a technical aspect in my game. It was more probably leadership. I got a great opportunity when I was at Hamilton to become captain for a long period of time. And because I sat in that sort of defensive role, I had the luxury of playing next to James McCarthy, James McArthur, who had played, I think, what, four or five hundred games in the Premier League between the two of them. I, I just basically ushered them about the pitch. My lack of sort of mobility probably allowed me to try and use my brain rather than my legs, and, and I used their legs. And, and that's sort of what, what helped form me, the, the tactical aspects of the game, the importance of spaces and make sure you understand where you're positioned on the pitch. Yeah, so a, a good playing career and maybe some of the responsibilities almost informs you when you get into management coaching because you've been almost learning the job whilst you're playing the game too. One of the hot topics, it, it seems to come around in cycles, but is transition, moments of transition. Are there key individuals in a team that you rely upon in those speed of decision-making in the transitional moments? Can you talk a little bit about transition in general? Yeah, definitely. I, I, I would probably say that my team, Dilly Preston, was a counter-transition team. We were at our most dangerous when the opposition had the ball. So when they had it, we would set traps and triggers for us to go and press. But I think what you need is, you need two key elements for me, or three key elements. Guys who can smell the danger, can nick it, and who are mobile, equally can find that first release pass to a technical player in some sort of attack of aggressive area. But the most important one for me is the guys willing to run without the ball. That's really important. And at Preston, we had guys who could smell the danger and nick the ball quite comfortably. Equally, we had that release pass into guys who would play in pockets and play in and amongst the lines. But more importantly, we had the one that would do the most damage, which is the guy who's willing to run without the ball, because they're the guys that you find. They're normally the guys who have got good pace and, and are happy not getting involved in the playback here, but want to run in and go and get on the end of things and score. And, and they are the most threatening for me. And weak tech finders, they're not the most technical players, but they can be the most effective. So as we shift, we've gone strategy, we've gone a little bit of tactics. If we can talk just briefly about the elite soccer session that you wrote. So you wrote a session for elite soccer on beating the high press. And, and maybe you've almost covered the answer a little bit when you were talking about overarching strategy. But why did you choose that topic? or the article you submitted? I, I did it because I think it's the most difficult thing when you're a back player to cope with. I think naturally, if teams just sit in their shape and allow you the ball, anybody can step in and pick a pass. It's not that difficult to do it. But what we tended to do is we wanted to train our defence in terms of coping with the most difficult press, which is the high press and teams getting after you in an area which should feel uncomfortable because you're so close to your goal. But equally, it allowed us to train our forwards and how they high press while that's the way we play at the top end of the pitch. So it allows you to fold two sessions into one, if you like. And equally, when you're doing the high press and you do nick it back, it comes into that part that I just said to you about, that counter transition. So we would be able to work three different aspects of what our key strength was as a team in one session. Can we build and play through teams? Can we high press and nick it back? And can we counter transition when we nick the ball back? And... They, those sessions were my favourite sessions for that particular group of players because that was pretty much our basis of what we were built on. It's interesting how you get the secondary and the tertiary benefits from the single topic. You use quite a lot of variables. You had a three-team activity. You had some zone conditions. You had some neutral players. In your coaching of a team during the week, are you typically quite comfortable using a lot of variables, manipulating conditions? Yeah, definitely. The way we always looked at it was there was three ways for us to break down a team. 
We could either play through them because they're quite open in terms of how they play. We could play around them because they'll sit deep and narrow. Or they'd play a high pressure, we'd play over them. So it's sort of puncturing the lines. And we would always, depending on what our opponent was going to come up with come the weekend, we would then evolve our strategy that week. And all the sessions would be based on what we deemed was coming come the weekend. So we knew we were going to play against the opponent that was going to sit deep and narrow. We would be switching to play and getting as many balls to flanks as we can to supply crosses and get numbers in the box. If it was a team that are going to try and play out to the back and we felt we could nick it, damage them, then that type of session is something that we'll really focus on as we go. The reason I introduced neutral players is that bit that I said to you about the three elements. So being able to smell the danger and nick it, but that release pass is so important. So because the players are neutral, we wouldn't necessarily use them in initial press. They were our release pass, so then we could counter and get that transition. And then in the scenario, in the article, you said we're going to play against a team that we want a high press. We've got 20 players. And so throughout that session, you use 20 players. Can you talk a little bit about the challenges of the guys that probably know they're going to be in the starting 11, maybe the two or three that can reasonably expect to get into the game and be part of it? And then keeping, to some extent, keeping the other eight, nine players engaged, creating the, the appropriate challenges for your top team or being ready to, to step up? How do you keep the 20 engaged when they're senior professionals? I, I think that's the holy grail of management, isn't it? It's the most difficult thing to do, is that other sort of six or seven players that probably don't expect to start, but you need to keep the spirits high, you need to keep the motivation high. What we would always do is we'd rotate all the time. So if we had to work on blocks, say we worked the block for four minutes or five minutes, we would work as many blocks as we needed to give our rotation for everybody to then encompass that role. We all get used to fulfilling the role that they need to within the team. And what we would maybe do, depending on how close to the end of the week we were, at the start of the week, I would mix it up so nobody would really understand or know what the team is. The closer I get to the game, the more we would start merging towards what the team's going to look like. And yeah, it can be frustrating, but I think any good professional when they look as if they're not playing, should use that as motivation in terms of, right, my job is to try and get myself in that team. And I think any manager will probably tell you, the guys you spend more time with are the guys who are not playing. The guys who are playing, in terms of talking to them throughout the week about how they are and all the rest there, they're, they're always content. They're always quite happy that they're in the start of and Yeah, that other group is a challenge for any manager, but that's what we try to do, is make sure that everybody, certainly early part of the week, get equal opportunity in terms of following those roles. It's, it's really interesting hearing a top manager talk about not just running a session with the tactics and the ideas, but also the man management component. So just all that added thought that goes into the day-to-day. -day. The session, it's very game-based. Can you talk a little bit about session planning as it relates to, to realism and elements of competition within the training and then the next specific opponent? Can you talk a little bit about the, the sort of the realism that you're trying to create in those sessions? Yeah, I, I think what initially you try and do is you try and micromanage it, if you like. So you try to take that one element out of a game and make it as small and condensed as possible so you're getting repeated opportunities to sort of carry that out. And then what you're trying to do is basically flesh it out, if you like. So then you maybe double it in size, maybe double it in player volume, but equally still getting repetition in that, but it becomes a bit more challenging because there's more variables to take into account. What we will do, but is if it's not working particularly well, because you know yourself, in any given day, you can put a session on one day and it works great. You can put the exact same session on two days later 
and it doesn't go so well. So that's where the variables become really important because I think your job to get your message across is to make sure that you simplify it as much as necessary just to get it moving. And then what you'll take to find is the players will then start kicking in gear. And once they do, then you can start to make it a little bit more difficult. You can take the conditions that we have necessary. Sometimes I find myself doing the start of the session for a brief period in time, seeing that it works so well, and then just saying, okay, muff them up, let's get it bigger. Because let's be honest, only it's focused around making sure on the day in the big games that it works. And if you can get to that point as quickly as possible, it allows you to then put your attention on something else that maybe needs a little bit of work. The longer that takes to get right, the more you're probably going to have to take away for something else that you need to work on leading up to the game. But equally, I think every week that you devise your sessions should definitely be based around how you're going to approach the game on Saturday. I think that gets your players' mindsets into what's coming up, whether it's switching the play, whether it's looking for penetrating ones, whether it's pressing, whether it's I don't know, anything you can do looking for balls off the front, whatever it may be. If you get your players' mindsets in that frame of mind at the start of the week, you'll have no issues come game day in terms of getting your messages across because they'll be all on the same page. I think it's dangerous that if you leave it right to the end, then they wee grey areas that maybe pop up that you've not resolved them. That's what your working week should look like because there will be grey areas that will pop up with certain players saying, when that happens, should I go here? If you can resolve all of that, all those dilemmas are already ready for the weekend. Whereas if you haven't, they might crop up on the game day and that's that's more problematic. So you like uh, the investment in the early parts of the week in, in getting it established. Last question. I think you covered quite actually quite a lot of the response in, in your last one, but your session beating the high press in elite soccer concludes with an 11 v 11 in a 86 by 60. So fairly tight space. Again, I really enjoyed the progressive nature of the session. Is your preference as a coach when you're on the field in the, in really in that coaching mindset, is it that simple to complex protocol? Are you really an adherent of the progressive style of coaching or do you ever occasionally start with maybe a game come out and then go back into the game or where do you stand on progressive, simple to complex? Probably progressive, simple to complex. Definitely. I think that if we start with the game, there's so many messages that the, the game's got so much to encompass as it is. So then try to just take that one aspect. I think when there's so many players and there's so much and try to get your message across, it's quite difficult. I think if you start it smaller, I think you get your message across quite quickly. I think you get across a lot simpler. And I think if you naturally build it up, it's like Jonathan, you wouldn't go to the most complex to start with. Do you know I mean? You would always start with the easiest sort of route. And then what you naturally do is start to flesh it. And that's the way I would always like to do it. However, what I do believe is by the end of your session, it needs to be game related. It really does. I, I think that a lot of sessions that I'll watch stay that sort of micromanaged, if you like, all the way through. And for me, it never really becomes the real thing then. So I always think that you need to get to the game point. I do understand people going through the game and then sort of winding it back. I think for the benefit of learning for the players, that's harder for them to grasp. That, that's what I've found. And I've watched sessions happen that way. But I just think it starts too big. And then I think that it gets lost a little bit. Whereas I think if you start it, and like I said earlier, it doesn't mean that I'm going to spend 30 minutes doing it. I might look at it and they get it like that. And then the next minute I'll go right boom, we've done that bit, you've got it, let's move on to the next part. Because particularly you're dealing with top players, a lot of top players get it right away. And what they do is they become bored. 
with just monotonous little drugs. You don't want to teach top players how to suck eggs. They, they know how to play football. You just need to get your message ingrained in their head. And the minute it's there, move on to the next bit. That's really important. Excellent. Thank you. Well, you've been really generous with your time and your answers on behalf of Elite Soccer. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Elite Soccer. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Remember to subscribe to Elite Soccer wherever you listen to your podcasts. Elite Soccer is the official technical coaching partner of the League Management Association. Visit EliteSoccerCoaching.net. Get session plans and coaching advice from Pep Guardiola, Jurgen Klopp, Brendan Rogers, and hundreds of the world's leading coaches. Elite Soccer is published by Green Star Media Limited. This podcast may not be reproduced in whole or part without the express written consent of Green Star Media Limited.